Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In 1971, Edward de Bono, the the creative thinking expert, the guy who created the term lateral thinking, was set some problems by New York magazine. And one of those was a problem that was exercising the mayor's office. And the fact was they had too few police officers to patrol the streets of New York City and no money to employ anymore. So De Bono went straight to his creative toolbox and applied a technique straight out of his book. And that was to come up with an exaggerated solution and then work backwards to find a means to make it happen. He argued that trying to work forward from an impossible problem to a solution It's easier to work backwards from a seemingly impossible solution and make it happen. 
The sort of thing that in the end would make you say, well, of course, why didn't we think about it a long time ago? Anyway, he came up with the absurd proposal that the police should have six eyes and then worked backwards to try and make it happen. Now, that exaggerated solution led to the suggestion that individuals should act as the eyes and ears of the police force, and that led to the first ever neighbourhood watch scheme that spread across America, Canada, Europe, and the rest of the world. Well, of course, it's obvious, isn't it? Why did nobody think about it sooner? The Apostle Paul, in our reading this evening, on the other hand, when faced with a problem, presents not an exaggerated or a fanciful solution, but the most strikingly straightforward answer to the world's largest problem. Now, we know that world peace, hunger, climate change, modern slavery, they're all very important. But the most important problem that faces every man, woman, and child on earth, whether they realize it or not, is this. What must I do to avoid the eternal damnation of hell and separation from God? That is the problem. And what is the solution? Well, verse 13, it's here, isn't it? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or perhaps to add a little more flesh to that statement, let's go back to verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, so if that is the, the solution to the world's largest problem, can, can you see here that Paul doesn't assume that the church will understand how to implement it. I mean, life can be like that sometimes. Can't it? We see something we want to do, but we don't know how to achieve it, or even sometimes where to start. And in the end, we, we, we just give up because it just seems too difficult. We don't know where to begin. Well, Paul perhaps seems to anticipate that, and he takes us backwards in the passage through the issues, spelling out the how and the why, until he takes us to the very first simple step. Step four, working backwards. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Step three, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Step two, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? Step one, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? That seems simple, doesn't it? Almost patronizing. Or perhaps we can consider it patronizing if the church in the UK demonstrated that it actually understood the solution to the, the world's largest problem by doing something about it more than half-heartedly in recent years. Okay, now I know what you're thinking, and you're right. You'll have guessed that mission directors like me are never happy, okay? Just like a, a turkey for whom there can never be enough days before Christmas. I, I, I can't ever imagine saying that we've got too many missionaries serving in Central Asia. But, but can I suggest to you that we risk choosing not to see or not really understanding the problem. Douglas Adams had it perfectly in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He talked about creating an SEP field around things that made them invisible. An SEP field was a someone else's problem field, arguing you cannot look at someone else's problem and see it. It becomes invisible to you. And even perhaps though we know it is only those who call on the name of the Lord who will be saved... Sometimes we choose to forget that this is in fact the only solution. So let's remind ourselves first of all about the problem. And, and can we have the website up? In preparing for this talk, I came across a website that I found completely mesmerizing. 
Um, using some very clever, clever programs, uh, you, you can see all sorts of things today. Sorry if you, you can't see it around the corner here, but I mean, things like how many um, emails sent today, 171 billion emails sent today, 3 million blog posts are ready today, um, uh, kind of cell phones, newspapers circulated. Um, was that 3.3 billion Google searches already today? All sorts of things, apparently, in real time. Um, but the one that I just sat and stared at, stared at is this. Can we go to the very top of that page? Is this one. The number of births and deaths today, the number of births and deaths this year already. Now, an, an urban myth did the rounds a few years ago when the rock singer Bono supposedly stopped one of his concerts and said, every time I click my fingers, a child in Africa dies, to which someone from the audience shouted out, well, stop clicking your fingers then. <laughs> but, 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 we, but we have it in, in real time here, almost in real time. 14 million people have been born this year so far. 14 million people. 6 million people have died this year so far. Now, uh, we know about a third of the world calls itself Christian, although I, I imagine the, the number of people we might call Bible-believing Christians is significantly lower than that. But let's be generous. The net effect is that 4 million people, just a bit more than a month into this year, have died this year so far who have not been reconciled to God. Four million people this year have not been reconciled to God and have died. And unless the Lord returns sooner, that figure will grow to something like 47 or 48 million people this year will die without being reconciled to God. Of the, the, popula- of the world's seven billion population, roughly, nearly five billion are spiritually lost. And what are the consequences for these people? We can take the screen off now, thanks. Um, well, we don't like saying the consequences, do we? Because it, it, it's, it's all, all sorts, for all sorts of uncomfortable reasons that we don't like saying it. But the Bible tells us unwelcome truths and uncomfortable truths. Now, that Paul doesn't mention the problem as I stated it specifically here in the text, but he actually hasn't stopped laying the ground for it the whole way through the book of Romans so far. Romans 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, more well-known verses, for the wages of sin is death. And before we try to convince ourselves, perhaps that people will be all right in the end anyway, won't they? We have to remind ourselves what Jesus tells us. In Matthew 7, 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Or more pithy, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. So there's really no other way for people to be reconciled to God than through the Lord Jesus Christ. Only God himself truly knows people's hearts and we know that he judges people fairly, but tens of millions of people each year are on the road that leads to destruction. Tens of millions Now, of course, there are those people who have heard the solution, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they've rejected it. Yet there are still many people around the world who have yet to hear of Jesus once. 
Now, actually, that's true in our own country, isn't it? Because for some reason or other, the church hasn't got to those people. The gospel hasn't reached them. However, there are some parts of the world that we call unreached. That's a technical term in the missions community, unreached. Those places where a tiny fraction of the people are Christians, and there's very little hope of the church reaching out to their own people in any significant way with the gospel. Now, there are pockets around the world of unreached people groups. And there's no surprise to you, the one dear to my heart is Central Asia, the place where people international works. I'm going to talk about people about Central Asia tonight, but extend out to these other unreached people groups, please. Central Asia has a population of about half a billion people, less than half of 1% of whom are Bible-believing Christians. It is the least reached region in the world. And in fact, Turkey, in the extreme of that region, is the least reached country in the world. There are fewer Christians, two fewer Turks Christians per head of population than any other kind of part of the world as a percentage. Two to three thousand believers in a population less than 70 million. So that is the problem. People perishing without the chance to hear the gospel once. So if that, so if that is the problem, the, the world's largest problem, well, let's remind ourselves of this most straightforward solution. Romans 3.23 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's keep going. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. From our reading this evening, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Of course, we know that, don't we? But how do we, the church, put that into action? What does it take for men and women around the world to call out to the Lord? A number of years ago, probably 10 or 15 years ago now, I served in the Coast Guard Service in the north coast of Ireland, and one of our key responsibilities was saving lives. On the sea, at the bottom of cliffs, or all too common halfway up cliffs, beyond the point of no return. Now, one autumnal Saturday afternoon, I was making haste to Portrush Harbour in my patrol boat. I say my boat because I was coxswain that afternoon, making all haste because there was a storm coming in off the North Atlantic and it was forecast to be well above my operating limit. However, en route to harbour, I got diverted to the assistance um, of some students from Coleraine University Yacht Club who had landed their sailing dinghy high and dry on an outcrop of rocks called the Black Rocks. And it's as bad as it sounds. And with this storm coming in that I couldn't stay out in, they were in a whole lot more peril. So I would come alongside. Portrush lifeboat was there, a big 52-foot boat. It was, ironically, it was too big and couldn't get in. It had a small boat on board. It couldn't get close enough. It was too small. We were the Goldilocks boat. Not too big, not too small, just right. <laughs> and actually, as, I, as we rescued them, that, that boat, Portrush lifeboat, stayed to rescue me in case I got in trouble trying to rescue these people off. And in fact, in the process, I nearly did wreck one of Her Majesty's boats, which is a lot of paperwork. (laughs) But we saved the crew. The boat I I could care less about, it got wrecked against the rocks with the storm coming in. 
but we saved the crew. The crew had called the Coast Guard on the distress calling frequency. But why did they call us? Why did they call us? Well, they called us because, first of all, they realized that their lives were in peril. They also believed that if they did call us, someone would come to their rescue. But why did they call us? Why didn't they call the fire service or the ambulance or the police to their aid? Well, they called us because we told them, if you're in peril, this is what peril looks like, but who do you call? On channel 16, 156.8 megahertz, you call the Coast Guard, you say Mayday. Um, And we took this message at every opportunity to our amateur sailors hung out, marinas, yacht clubs, wherever they were, we were there putting posters, talking to them. If they ever got in trouble, you call the Coast Guard. With a different rescue mission in mind, yet another life and death situation, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And to call on the Lord, they must believe, but to believe in him, they actually must have heard of him. Of course, it's not just a matter of hearing the name Jesus or hearing that he existed on earth. People need to be taken to the the gospel, the the scriptures. First of all, to to know their need of a rescue and then present it to the Lord Jesus himself. And if they're to hear about Jesus, someone has to tell them. Someone has to tell them. It says, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, there are some people who have just read a book or a tract and responded to the message. We, we, we probably know of people like that. But the vast majority of people who have come to a living knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ have had someone tell them the good news of the gospel. That might be in a big Billy Graham-style rally or a Sunday church meeting like this. It might be in a house group. It might be in a Christianity Explored course. It might even just be a conversation between two people in a kitchen over a cup of coffee. But the point is people don't guess the gospel Paul didn't say, and how are they to hear without someone making big hints and praying? The sense in this passage is about someone going in to the situation with the deliberate intention of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The preaching might be in Wembley Stadium, or it might be in someone's kitchen. But it is much less about the style of delivery than the intentionality of sharing it. And that is at the heart of missions Now, we all know, don't we, that as believers, we're all asked to give an account to those who ask us questions. Colossians 4 tells us we should be salt and light in every situation. But mission, if I can be so bold as to define it this way, is embracing the intention of going somewhere else to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, wherever a missionary ends up, they're most likely to discover many human needs And it's right and proper to meet those. However, for them to solve the biggest problem that people have, the people they see must call on the name of the Lord and the missionary must preach Jesus Christ as Lord for them to hear, believe and call on him. And that's when we come to the last step. The the why didn't we think about it earlier moment? And how are they to preach unless they are sent. How are they to preach unless they're sent? Notice it doesn't say, how are they to preach unless someone goes? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, how are they to preach unless someone volunteers? It doesn't say that either. 
unless they are sent. That is where we, the church, enter the story, stage left. That is our responsibility. We, the church, do the sending. The church, guided by the Spirit of God with the Scriptures as our benchmark, after prayerful consideration, we, the church, appoint ministers of the gospel, prepare them, and send them out. That's the New Testament way of doing things. Now, now things aren't always done the right way around, and that doesn't mean the outcome is flawed. I mean, for instance, unlike my three brothers-in-law, I didn't ask my father-in-law's permission before proposing to my now wife Maggie, and despite his initial surprise, still obtained his permission after the event, retrospectively. A bit like retrospective planning permission, I guess. (laughs) And in a sense, this is how the majority of missionaries are sent across the world and have been for the last century. Most missionaries are sent at the initiative of the individual concerned with perhaps the church confirming it later. Now this, as I read the New Testament, isn't necessarily the biblical approach, okay? But without that, we would have had very few ministers of the gospel over the last century in this country or abroad. If we were in India or Korea, our relationship with the church leadership would be very different, I think. In India, the pastor would probably decide to choose a husband or a wife for us. In Korea, he might well tell you it's about time that you went overseas and planted a church somewhere. Now, I I can't speak to the local situation here, but I I can't imagine very many of you in the gallery are are, are waiting for Paul to choose your husband or your wife for you. I'm not quite sure how you'd respond to that proposal. But can I ask you this? Would it be so wrong? Are you prepared for the leadership of the church. And not only Paul, I mean, leadership's more than just Paul, but the leadership of the, the church. Someone in the leadership to tap you on the shoulder and suggest that your life, your career that you've mapped out for you, takes a different direction for the sake of the gospel. Because they've recognized in you the gifting that is desperately needed somewhere else in the world. Are you prepared for that? For the leadership of the church to say, I know you've got this career mapped out in front of you, but for the sake of the gospel. My challenge to leadership is, will you be courageous to do that? And my challenge to the rest of you is, be prepared. Prepare yourself for that challenge that the leadership may ask you. And not only in that, I mean, I've been in so many churches where the leadership are saying, please, can we people do this, this, and you know. Leadership is leadership. If someone recognizes gifting in you, Will you accept that someone is asking you to do something and prayerfully consider it? If it's for gospel service overseas or another part of this country, take it away and consider it. So that is the challenge here for the church in the UK, can I suggest to you, to step up to its responsibility to send people where they are most needed. Not necessarily where people want to volunteer to go, as I said, there are strategic parts of the world, unreached parts of the world. Central Asia is just one of them. You know, cards on the table, you know I like it, okay? But there are other parts of the world. OMF can tell you about some. SIM can tell you about others. You know, ask them. Where strategically in the world should we be sending mission partners right now? Uh, and have the courage um, 
to, to, to go there and to make it a priority. When I phoned around the other mission agencies a couple of years ago, the, the number of missionaries leaving our shores is diminishing. It has been for years. You look around the, the, the missionary training colleges, the numbers are shrinking all the time. Central Asia is... is has suffered from that as well. We, it's, not a, it's not a trendy place to go. I mean, you mentioned Afghanistan, Pakistan. People get a bit twitchy. Um, but I, I phoned around, and, and I wondered why we weren't seeing people presenting for service, being sent to Central Asia. And I phoned around the other missionary societies. I know all the directors. And I discovered that in the la- for the last couple of years, we have no more between all of us than five mission partners going out from the UK to Central Asia, between everybody in the UK. In fact, we know of each year of more than five people returning to the UK. That's the challenge I'm laying in front of the church at the minute, to this lost part of the world, Central Asia. Our passage finishes with how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And my challenge for you is, will you pray that the Lord will raise up from among you Will you identify and send people who will go to these unreached parts of the world, these strategic parts of the world, where the gospel is just not heard and people are perishing every day without it? Or if you have nobody to send, will you commit to pray? Now, I'm preaching to the choir here. I know that's really very much in your heart. But will you look within your membership and say, are there people, maybe next year and year's time, you'll prepare to send out into gospel service in these unreached parts of the world? But in the meantime, will you pray together as we ask the question, where are the beautiful feet? Amen? Amen. Can I say a quick plug for for after the the service? Um, Neil Rogers is going to be doing a quick Q&A with Robin and myself. Uh, What's the name of the room we're in? The York Room. Okay, the York Room. And I've got the most amazing testimony of a Turkmen pastor, a pastor from Turkmenistan, which when I've shown it in churches has just left people breathless, speechless. Come and see it. It'll change your world point, your viewpoint for that part of the world entirely. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for those people who have proclaimed the gospel to us that we have responded and called you Lord. We pray that you would stir up in us uh, a desire to reach out to these lost people through our prayers and through the commitment as a church to sending people where they're needed. Lord, as we hear your word, as your spirit acts within us, we pray for courage to act as you prompt us, that your name may be glorified here and across the world. Amen.